1: Nicole Hayes has left the Lions and has followed Sabrina Frederick in a what can only be been described as a package deal to Richmond. Felicity Race has signed on with Carlton, leaving the Bulldogs behind after three years and a premiership. But all of us are sticking fat, aren't we? I'm still Carlton. What are you, Kate?
2: Oh, I'm Adelaide
3: all the way. I'm back with Melbourne and Daisy Pearce. Mm-hmm. I'm Collingwood and every other team.
1: And that concludes AFLW Sanctum Trade News for
3: 2019
4: <laughs> Kermit the Frog speaking
1: <laughs> Kermit the Frog is the best
3: reporter ever. Hey Kermit hey, ya My Near Manamana. name
5: is Nana to the Out of St. podcast.
1: Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side. Houghton.
5: She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Yeah.
1: Welcome to the Out of Sanctum for another week. I'm your host, Emma Race, and it gives me the greatest of thrills to be here in the Stu Stu studio with my Sanctum sisters, football-loving, leather-kicking, highest-point-marking sisters. I'm going to let you introduce yourselves.
2: I'm Aria Stark.
1: Doctor Aria Stark. (laughs) Doctor.
3: Associate Professor Aria Stark. Hi, Kate's here. I'm Lucy (laughs) Race. I'm Brianna And Alicia. And which Muppet would you be? I'd be Animal.
1: Yes. We've done this before. Mm. Um, We've done the test. You should take the test. If you haven't done the (laughs) test, everyone should take the Mm. test. Okay, let's move on to footy news, shall we? We're going to kick off with some AFL M highlights. One thing that I really got enthralled in the game just for the actual skills this week, I loved Matthew Parker's grabs for St Kilda. Amazing. And um, Mundy's goals in the third quarter on his 300th. I really enjoyed that. And shout out to Georgina Hibbert, who's a huge Out of Sanctum listener, and she asked us to mention Toby Green's goal from the boundary, which was amazing, but Nicole has some contention with that because she thinks that you shouldn't be able to kick it Mm. from outside the white line.
2: Well maybe we might have uh, an umpire on later that we can ask some some questions of about about mm-hmm. that. It was a round of goals, wasn't it? Because there was also the Joe Danaher goal from about 2 kilometres out in the <laughs> in the Anzac Day match. 2.1. 2.1. Mm. Also those goals by Paddy Ryder and Patrick Dangerfield, oh my God,
3: so good.
4: I would agree with you on the goals and um, I've been on Gary Watch. So the Gary's at Geelong are combining beautifully for some goal scoring. So they kicked together six goals against West Coast and that was just a, what a result. Yeah, that was like amazing. I thought that would have been a much closer game. But the week before they'd kicked seven goals against Hawthorne. The Garys so The Garys, Gary Rowan and Gary Ablett for Geelong. And I can't go past this week without mentioning Sydney Stack who is just so exciting to watch. He took a mark in that game against Melbourne that was incredible. And then that bump on Jack Viney. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. I don't like seeing players injured,
3: but wow, that yeah. was amazing. It was a
1: moment, wasn't it?
3: I'm on jack watch with St Kilda because there's 85 of them in the team. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, no, I'm loving St Kilda, even though I know they lost this week, but they've just been sh- showing such form and I think they're going to be a contender this year. Watch this space. I love the Richmond-Melbourne game. It was just so exciting and obviously go Tess. <laughs> um, Collingwood v Essendon was an amazing game. I know we'll talk about it for other reasons, but just an incredibly rich, deep game. Yeah. And Hawthorne, um, Carlton a stopped weird my heart. Game. Yeah, that was <laughs> stopped
1: a my heart. very strange game. Yes, Lucy Something
3: race. really caught my eye in that
4: Essendon Collingwood game, and that was Matt Guelphy's hair. So yep. he's rocking the Draco Malfoy now, mm-hmm. yep. so the peroxided hair. And it got me thinking that, you know, we often talk about putting together teams of the century or whatever, and I'm wondering whether we could put together some teams where players are divided by hair.
1: Like how they have that greys race, just grey horses. Yes, just grey horses. So I was thinking you could have the
4: mullets versus the man buns. Mm -hmm. You could put a team bleached bleached versus redheads. The fades, the faded, Mm. kind of the the bellyage versus... Who I like to call the hair bears, like the Dyson Heppels. <laughs> yeah, the hair bears. You know the bears, yeah. people with a lot. And then I was thinking you could have a special category for facial hair, and maybe call it the bushrangers versus the dastardly villains.
1: Oh yes, because of those mows.
2: Mm, yeah, <laughs> I thought you were going somewhere else with that, Lucy. Oh, yeah. I love all of those ideas. Mm, BTW, but I it's thought,
1: better than AFLX.
2: AFLH. And (laughs) I thought you were going to suggest that we put together a team of the century based on hairdos, which I could really. Oh, let's get behind that. I'm behind that idea. Let's take that to socials this week. And everyone nominate.
1: Stubble. Yeah, Stubble. Stubble's a great name for a team. Or for a cat. (laughs) If you're naming a new cat out there, call it Stubble. Um, you can also do neck tats versus um, sleeves. Just True. saying. Okay. Um, can I talk just about the ladder really briefly? Oh, yes, briefly? of course. And have you got an omen
2: watch from? Yes, oh, I have okay. from the ladder actually. So – one of the things that I have really appreciated this week is how different the ladder is looking to what we might have anticipated. You know, there's a lot of teams doing better than we thought and teams that like West Coast that perhaps aren't going as well as people would have predicted. I'm always keen to to have a look at whether the ladder forms a word or any other kind of mm. anagram or if there's anything that we can divine from the order of the ladder. And I think we can this week. So the, the top three teams are Geelong, Frio, and Collingwood, which of course stands for GFC. <gasps> which stands for Global Financial Crisis, Geelong Football Club, Club, Mm. or some other rude words which I won't say on the pod. (laughs) Uh, The the Global Financial Crisis began in 2007 and lasted until 2008, which of course was the period of the Geelong Football Club's real dominance, winning the flag in 2007 and losing, you know, basically no games, or a couple of games in 2008, one of which was the grand final. I guess Geelong's going to... Win the granny. See you by name, see you by, by nature. nature. Thank you. I'm i oh. available for parties.
1: And <laughs> Take your and teeny tiny events. hat off and Thank dip you. it right now. Thank that you. was some very fine work by you. Okay, let's roll up our sleeves and Malay ladies. Yesterday there was a story that was unfolding throughout the day actually involving James Faulkner who plays cricket for Australia. Kate, do you want to talk us through the anatomy of that kind of story?
2: Yeah, what happened was uh, he posted something on his Instagram where he, a photograph of himself out for his birthday with his mum and another man. And he tweeted and said something like celebrating my birthday with the boyfriend and mum and then hashtag five years together or some words to that effect. That post was interpreted by many people in the media, and us as well, as um, as meaning that he had come out as gay. And, and that would have been a fairly historic moment because he would be the first Australian men's cricketer at the top level to have come out. James Faulkner later released another Instagram post clarifying the original post to say, look, actually, that's not what I meant at all. He's my best friend. It was not intended that way at all. I'm straight.
1: Interesting, there's a few things that were levelled at journalists yesterday about them not checking their source. And um, one person who had a really interesting spin on it was Corbin Middlemas, who is a commentator with ABC Grandstand, who came out last year and wrote an article about it, which was amazing. And he spoke to Raphael Epstein on Melbourne Drive yesterday.
0: If James had posted a photo with his mum and his girlfriend of five years with a love heart and the hashtag which said, been together five years, would we need to ring him and clarify whether he's actually straight or not? It was almost this implicit undertone that it was like, well, I'm an alpha male. How on earth could I possibly be gay? Like, you should know that as if, like... It was a stupid response for people to connect the dots and think that that was something that is plausible. And I think in 2019, to me, that's just completely tone deaf and, and so out of touch with, uh, with I think, where most people are. How else should the media interpret that? Is that not a, an appropriate
3: response?
1: So it's interesting talking about the source and whether or not, as Corbyn raises there, whether or not you'd need to confirm the source if that had in fact just been a suggestion of a heterosexual relationship. And, of course, that probably wouldn't have been checked. And the other thing is Instagram is now a source of news and social media is, and especially when you look at the fact that James Faulkner has 342,000 followers. So that is more followers than potentially people by newspapers in certain <laughs> areas. You know, that is a minor news outlet now, I suppose.
3: He's a blue tick and it went on Twitter as well. And you've got to remember too that Glenn Maxwell wrote happy birthday, mate, great courage, sentiments that were echoed by Sean Tate who wrote great courage, mate. These are really calls into question his uh, motives for the original post. It really does. It's either naivety or it is, of course not malice, but... What is his intentions behind it too? Well, a
1: culture of casual homophobia and using that as um, a launching place for jokes is I guess how I saw it. I saw Jess Wushner tweeting and she's great on Twitter and she was saying, you know, why is it different that a woman can say this is my girlfriend and, and then when a guy says this is my boyfriend it's taken as an outing? It definitely would have been a huge international story if this had happened and the reason I guess we were digging into it this morning just by James The antics of this and the way that it's set up and the way that the context of his playing group also buying in and they would clearly know that he's not in a... Same sex relationship with this person who is his business partner, that actually feeds and regenerates that kind of atmosphere and climate that when you say the word boyfriend, it has a different connotation to when girlfriends say girlfriend. So it's actually set the path back a bit when we first thought that it was, you know, an official kind of statement that was being made. So we did tweet it. There was a reaction by a lot of people to that. And one of those people was Julia Kiara, who is the co host of this AFL Live podcast. She's the Welfare Manager at the Carlton AFLW team She's been a coach with the Darabin Falcons And of course she's a friend of the pod She joins us on the line now How are you JC? I'm well thanks, how are you guys? Good thanks I was interested to see your reaction Your first one and then your second one Can you talk us through your thinking When you saw the announcement that was about James Faulkner?
5: So when I first saw it I was elated And then I quickly looked at his Insta post And it was such a kind of I thought, wow, it's a real, really modern, normal way to come out—an adult man with his adult partner having dinner on his birthday with his supportive parent—and a really kind of low-key way of coming out that really resonated with me. And especially because, you know, as we know, it's men's sport, and that we don't have, you know, our players. Well, we, you know, we have a couple uh, scattered across, but we we don't have those role models. And then <laughs> it became apparent that. It was a joke or not a joke or misconstrued or... Yeah, I was a bit heartbroken, I think, because it became apparent that this wasn't this kind of proud moment about modern queer relationships and queer people and how queer people managed to exist in sport. It was, oh no, in this world, being gay is absolutely hilarious. Being gay is something that your teammates are going to tease you about if you have particularly close relationships with other men and that we continue to be the butt of jokes in particular spaces. Yeah, and I just thought, wow, what a way to kind of hurt our community for no reason than a few, I don't know, trying to get some cheap laughs.
2: JC, it's Kate here. I wanted to ask you about the way that the conversation evolved and shifted over Mm. the course of the day. So quite quickly, I think the conversation shifted when James Faulkner came out and said, look, it was never my intention to offend anybody. And then a debate kind of seemed to play out in in my estimations on social media about whether the queer community was quote-unquote being overly sensitive. How did you react to that?
5: Yeah, well, I don't think we're being overly sensitive. I think that if someone is trying to make a joke and we are the butt of the joke, calling them out on that is not being sensitive. It's trying to hold people accountable for their actions and, and how hurtful they are being. White male straight men do not understand the search that queer people have to see themselves reflected in the mainstream so the fact that it was offered up and then retracted and people were hurt by that and privileged people who never experienced that longing feel that we're being sensitive well I don't really need to argue with that because there's no understanding of what queer people go through. And I don't want to make it sound like a pity party, like we're a strong community, but we are are searching for those reflections of ourselves in spaces that we haven't been made to feel welcome.
3: JC, it's Alicia. Was it compounded when Cricket Australia in a comment to the ABC said the post was a joke that has been taken out of context they then walked that back and said they didn't consider his actions to be a joke but what does that do uh, using that language a joke that has been taken out of context?
5: Yeah well it just compounds that idea that being gay is funny like (laughs) and being a gay man is somehow funny and that those types of jibes or, you know, locker room talk. I know you always talk about locker room talk being ridiculous, but that we're the butt of the joke and the fact that they've put that statement out and then obviously heard heard it with, you know, a bit more insight and then realised how, well, not just how it sounded, but but the implication of that. That is hurtful and it does reinforce what people, queer people who live, who hear these messages all the time, now get to hear it from our great big sporting bodies as well. Mm.
1: JC, thank you so much for sharing your insight. We live the nothing about us without us. We're not part of that community, so we appreciate your voice on this. Thanks, guys.
4: I think it's worthwhile keeping in mind that James Faulkner would have gone through media training. He would understand as an athlete with a profile in this country that things that he does put out on Instagram are going to be picked up. I like what Jess Wooshner is saying in terms of, you know, we should be able to just talk about our relationships using whatever language we like. And I would really like to be at a place where that's happening, but I don't think we're at that place yet. You know, I really feel for people who may have been made to feel uncomfortable or vulnerable mm. about what happened yesterday.
3: So, Alita, what caught your right, eye this week? In a column for the Herald Sun last week, David King, you know, former North Melbourne player, labelled Coach Brad Scott a visitor to Arden Street and questioned whether he was a good fit for the tired AFL club. Wayne Carey came back and said that if you asked 100 people what the shin bonus spirit is, I reckon you'd get 100 different answers because it was levelled at him that he didn't have the shin bonus spirit. So it made me think, what the hell is a shin bonus spirit? I know we know that North Melbourne has been called the shin boners and so forth, but I dug into it a little bit because I'd always thought it had something to do with abattoirs and meat. Uh, so North Melbourne Cr- Football Club originated in 1869 uh, for local cricketers who wanted to keep fit over the winter months. The club, for much of its early history, was known as the Shin Boners, and it was to do with local butchers who showed their support for North by dressing up beef leg bones in club colours and putting it <laughs> out the front of the shop. Former club president Fonse Tobin changed the name to the Kangaroos in the mid-50s because he disliked the term shin boners so much as he wanted a mascot we could show. I always hated the name. It projected an unfavourable image. Absolutely. But there's also a theory that they're called shin boners because in their early days they would kick the shins of the opponents and that they were just known as tough rough nuts uh, of of Arden Street. It it was really good to dig deep into North Melbourne. But what I was thinking was, one, how can you level that at a coach that they don't have the club team Mm -hmm. spirit? That's one thing we could look at. But also, do you have a hawk spirit? Do you have the spirit of the Saints what are these things? What can we get down to? <laughs> well, it's,
4: always, it's one of those things that I always wonder about culture and how you can say that a particular club has, you know, say the shin boner spirit. There are so many people that come through a club over the years. I understand that culture is part of it, but culture evolves. It's a really interesting thing to sort of invoke, I guess, something that's quite esoteric.
1: The Shinbone spirit's been so enduring that that yep. as a concept has been so enduring, and I guess what it is, it's an early version of a hashtag. You know, there is like "Raise Hell" is the Melbourne one, and "Be More Bulldog," you know, "Be More Bulldog," those kinds of things. And I do think that these days you kind of do invest in you invest in the hashtag, and you start to believe mm. that that's what your club represents. Maybe it's less about the players, and maybe it's more about the custodians, which is the fans. And mm. I wonder whether it's something that they can hang on to in addition to the jumper. Uh, it's a vibe. Just to quote the castle, like a vibe that you can pass on for generations and you can have this kind of mythical way that you talk about your club and and what what it evokes for you.
2: In general terms, that kind of sense that a person who didn't play for that club originally can't be imbued with the spirit of the club, whatever the spirit means, is the kind of logic that gets clubs into trouble because mm. they, they tend to be insular. That seems to me to be a very old-fashioned way of thinking about who is right to lead your club.
1: Kate Sia, yeah, Sporting Behaviour.
2: <laughs> For me, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few weeks, but some of my thoughts on this really crystallised over the weekend when I watched a documentary on Netflix called Dawn Wall. Our listeners might know that in the last few months, two films have come out both about rock climbing. Dawn Wall is one of them. And there's another one called Free Solo, which actually won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature this year. Both of those films are about men involved in rock climbing attempts to um, ascend El Capitan, which is a 3,000 feet high granite rock, almost sheer granite rock, in Yosemite National Park in the United States. Absolutely beautiful. Dawn Wall focuses on the experiences of two men, Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgeson, but mainly on Tommy Caldwell, I think. He's the protagonist. Many people consider him to be the best in the world. Um, I'm going to give a spoiler alert because I'm going to give the game away. But essentially what happens is they have to climb the wall in stages or what they call pitches, and it takes them almost three weeks. They reach a certain point where Tommy makes it across a couple of the most difficult or probably the most difficult pitches and Kevin doesn't. And so Tommy pushes on. He makes it to uh, a point which is really the most difficult point of the climb and once he gets to that point it's pretty clear that he's then going to make it to the top. And at that point something extraordinary happens. It's a real moment in the documentary and I just want to play the audio of that moment to you now.
5: Yeah, I'm here right now. I know it's not over yet, but that's, like, big. And <laughs> am at Wino Tower. What are you feeling? <sighs> I, want
3: Ke- I want Kevin to experience this, too, for sure. It was this huge victory, but it was totally trumped by the fact that Kevin wasn't going to do it with me. Suddenly, I just felt alone. kind of crashed down on me. That going to the top without Kevin was going to be devastating. So I decided in that moment, We are going to get to the top together.
2: It's a real moment. It's a real turning point in the documentary. But what was really interesting to me is that what Tommy reveals in that moment is that the personal achievement of the climb or the win isn't everything and that there's something deeper that matters, and that is sharing this moment together with his friend. And it got me thinking a lot about sport and recreation and human endeavour and human achievement and what we think the value of sport is. So often we think it's about winning or, or achieving it at all costs and about certain kinds of achievements but occasionally we are reminded that it's a bit, it's a bit more complex than that and and that is that there is more than one way to extract meaning from sport that is a theme that's been resonating in my mind for a long time when i think about footy and it's something that we heard a little bit about last night actually we went to the Hawthorne VFLW launch and the coach of the Hawthorne team Paddy Hill who he did a wonderful speech and he made the point that women's footy is about more than just the spectacle or more than the win. It's about inclusion and it's about a bigger battle for equality. But it was also something that I think came out in the Anzac Day match when Nathan Buckley called out the booing of Scott Pendlebury. And I think Buckley was keen to remind people of the irony of taking footy that seriously on a sombre day that involved the commemoration of War Dead. But it's also why I think people on social media came to the defence of Joe Danaher and Brodie Grundy. I don't know if you saw that. There was a photograph taken of them in an embrace before the teams ran through the banner, and there were people on social media questioning the fact that they had embraced and questioning their focus and their commitment and their integrity, which I just thought was absolutely ridiculous. This was a few days after Joe Danaher had farewelled his grandfather. There's more than one way to think about sport and to value the game and and ways that challenge and destabilise, I think importantly, traditionally valorized forms of masculinity. And I think it's important to value and acknowledge these moments precisely because when we don't, when we see sport and sports people, but particularly male athletes, in very narrow and normative ways, It does reinforce problematic ways of being and it can spread to the crowd. And I think it's why we sometimes see things like crowd violence erupting after football matches, which has happened this year a couple of times. We haven't talked about it too much, but that to me comes out of, I think a culture which values winning above everything and can lose perspective in
4: sport. Kate, you've really tapped into something that um, it actually links in beautifully to an article I read this week that was by Jonathan Wilson in The Guardian called How Marcello Bielsa Gave Leeds Fans Something to Be Proud of Again. And this was a really interesting thing that happened in EPL. So Leeds were playing Aston Villa and a player for Aston Villa went down and one of the things that happens in soccer is that usually the player from the other team will just kick the ball out. It's a gesture of sportsmanship that goes across that code. This didn't happen in that moment and the Leeds players played on and scored. The Aston Villa players were really cross that that didn't happen and, you know, chaos ensued. Leeds manager um, Bielsa then ordered his team at the kickoff to stand still and to let Aston Villa score with the exception of one defender who I don't know what he was doing. He <laughs> tried to stop it, instinct. but that instinct, basically they allowed for the equaliser. And this is a, a beautiful piece that Jonathan Wilson wrote because he talks about how this was a gesture that had consequences. So there would have been an opportunity for Leeds to be elevated up to the Premier League. Um, it would have depended on other results, but in conceding that goal, It actually was about much more than that. I would highly recommend you reading this article because he talks about, you know, at a time when people are getting disillusioned, there are people who are sticking fat with their clubs and often that's because of other reasons. and I did a little bit of digging about Bielsa and there's this beautiful anecdote that I'd just like to share with you. This is from another article um, in The Guardian by David Heitner. And he talked about when Bielsa came to Leeds. He was asking the question about how long or how hard an average supporter had to work to pay for a ticket to the game. And he found out that it would be about three hours. So he gathered his players together and told them that for the next three hours they would be picking up rubbish. His objective behind that was that he wanted his players to really appreciate how hard the fans worked to enable them to support their passion, which is this club. And I think that that really indicates that empathy, but also the ideas of discipline and team spirit are something that's really important to that man. So I think that's the message I'd like to take away from that little anecdote.
1: One thing I noticed this week was at the football, and I am going to declare that I am a fellow with Our Watch and the Walkley Foundation for another couple of months at least, is that I noticed that Our Watch had done some banner advertising at the grounds. It felt really salient for me, I guess, this week, and maybe for you guys too, to see those given that this week, Natalina Ancock and Amy Parsons, two Australian women, were both um, murdered, allegedly at the hands of their partners or loved ones. And as an Our Watch fellow, I have met Sherelle Moody, who is a journalist who works in Queensland. And she also does a project on the side on Facebook that some of you may follow. It's called the Red Heart Campaign. And she maps where women have been murdered by current partners or former partners. And it's horrific. It's a really horrific. It's a real indictment on the current landscape. One woman a week, often more, are dying in situations that that they shouldn't there's a campaign that Outwatch are running and its line is doing nothing does harm. I thought that was really interesting because I so have longed for people who have huge megaphones of privilege to step up and speak out and to say something. But in football, it doesn't happen very often and I think people struggle to find the words. One thing that I have noticed is that as women are moving into footy clubs, that footy clubs are trying to find their way. It's At times, it's failing. And Sherelle Moody... Faced a really interesting situation that was unfolding a couple of weeks ago when she highlighted some language that someone had been using on Facebook and it was really violent language. The person was associated with the Nyora Football Club in their women's program. We have been following this story and it's been quite fraught and it's been really hard and confronting to watch and it's been confronting to see the comments that have been going back and forth. But we contacted the Niora Football Club. They have taken it really seriously. They've had two executive meetings. They're still working on decisions internally on how to perfectly kind of handle this and to deal with it. And they're still working through it as a club. They are a small uh, regional community. It's really important that they get this right. And we spoke to their president earlier today and uh, his name is Gavin Doig and he he acknowledged that they're taking it really seriously and they want to get it right because their women's team is about to start the competition for for this year and they, they want to make it a place and a hub that's really safe for people to come and they're kind of shocked by how it's all unfolded and how quickly they became a national story. They're trying to deal with that and there are programs that can help with these kinds of things and how to have gender equity and respectful relationships within football clubs. And coming up in the program we are going to speak to Chelsea Roffey who is the goal umpire at AFL level who has gone on to write a program and to work on creating workshops that can help local community clubs and and bigger clubs too and and work environments with the gender equity piece within their communities and within their businesses, which is incredibly important. We're looking forward to speaking to Chelsea about that. But this week again we saw um, an ex-AFL player speak out on Facebook with some hurtful and harmful language.
3: This is one of the most disappointing. Pointing things I've read in a long time and Sherelle Moody highlighted it for us but on a political post a, a woman wrote something that David Reese jones who's a former Carlton and Sydney player and is also a coach of a girls footy club something he disagreed with and instead of just writing something quite calmly his post was he wrote her name and then he says you obviously need a good whack in the head to get some sense into it. I'd gladly do that for you. He then wrote Wrote a private message, which I won't go into. This is unacceptable language. This is horrible. It is not leading by example. We don't know the circumstances exactly surrounding why he's done this, or um, so we we will follow up on this.
1: It's an interesting one when we think about the AFL players who get a lot of education and support around this, but their former players do reflect on their community and back onto the clubs that they have played for, and especially when you look at players who may be elevated into Hall of Fame status or getting recognition when there's premiership get-togethers and, you know, that, that they are continually embraced by the club. We really do need to have more voices talking about it. I liked seeing the Our Watch campaign being advertised at the football. I thought it was really great placement. And we have put in a call and we've asked Patty Kinnersley, who is the CEO of Our Watch, to come on our show so that we can talk to her more about the research and why they're doing that and how they can engage footy more. But we need to walk the walk in football. And I don't think it's enough to have Mother's Day rounds and, and have respect and responsibility policies if former players are still speaking like this. But I don't know what the jurisdiction is there with clubs to be able to re-educate people who've already left the system? Whether you like it or not, when you
4: post something on social media, it reflects on the various circles that you move in. So if that's the Australian cricket team or if that is an AFL club or if that is a grassroots club, that will reflect on that position that you hold there. Mm. And we know that there there is really good data to show that – Disrespect helps to create the environment in which violence occurs, and that is why it's so important. I think, you know, we need to actually understand that no longer can you just say these things and get away with it, and there there is going to be blowback
1: violence against women is preventable I think that's what I really want people to take away that we can change this story but we all need to dig in and we all need to work on it together so we will tweet out some of the links to our watch and to the information but coming up we are going to be speaking with Chelsea Roffey who has some programs and some workshops available that can help you at a grassroots level. These two things shouldn't be mutually exclusive, but we have a favourite umpire. <laughs> <laughs> and she's in the house. We welcome Chelsea Ruffey. Woo! Yay. Thanks, guys. How are you, Chelsea? We haven't seen you in the Outer Sanctum studio for about two years, I think. It has been a while. Yeah. And um, now in the, the ABC, everything's very slick. Mm. Got
0: headphones on. Mm. Not Which our a performance, step up.
1: but the equipment is definitely slick. <laughs> oh uh, yes, You're from a technical couch.
0: viewpoint, of course.
1: We have lots of things that we want to talk to you about. Um, you've been doing some amazing and interesting things in gender balance and equalisation at footy clubs. We want to talk about that. We just can we pepper you with a couple of umpire questions first.
0: Please do. Okay, I'd expect nothing less. Should umpires be full time? Oh, great question. Hell, this is a personal opinion. I think it's healthy that they're not. I don't know that it would a- actually add to, you know, would it create better performance or so if that is the intention. I-, I don't actually understand the driving force behind making it full time. The footy bubble is something that can be really intense, particularly, you know, as umpires. And I speak as a goal umpire. I'm not a fieldie, I'm not mm. sort of living and breathing it in the way that they do. But it is a really intense environment. And I think having that ability to step away from it, I think is really healthy. Yeah.
4: There was a real discussion about umpiring post the Anzac Day match and some of the discussion around booing, what I'm really interested in is how does booing and that kind of crowd criticism impact on you personally?
0: We love footy. Um, We as in people who love footy, um, we love the game but we also seem to accept that booing the umpires is part of the culture Mm -hmm. and when you're an umpire, I think it doesn't matter when you sign up you know, for the that community level game, you, you kind of know what you're getting into, and there's that element where you think, well, it is just something I'm going to have to learn to deal with and and flick it away, and you know that's part of building your resilience. You know, I think it is important to have that level of resilience as a decision maker on the field and and being able to withstand the pressure and scrutiny. But at the same time, you know, we're people doing a job. The really important thing to remember is. You know, if we want to attract quality people to umpiring and create that pathway and that pipeline that does go right to the top so that we're getting the best performers um, and decision makers on the field, we're going to have to think about the impact um, that that can have from grassroots level right up to the tops. Yeah, it is a part of the culture. Most people are accepting of that. But you know, I think as a a society, it's something to really think about.
3: On that Anzac Day game, um, there was an article in The Age by Sam McClure saying, if you don't mind, AFL umps blow whistle on lack of support and saying that senior umpires feel that they've been let down. I know you can't speak for all the senior umpires for sure, but do you feel that you are supported well by the AFL? Look,
0: I think Sean Ryan really summed up the feeling well the other day on 3AW. It's about having that discussion so that the public um, is aware of, I think, their responsibility to actually engage with the rules a little bit and, and be informed.
2: So in terms of informing the public, Chelsea, I wonder if you can help us a little bit, help us on perhaps an adjudication point, because one thing that we've wondered about for a long time here on this show is why Ben Brown isn't penalised in his run-up to kick a goal, given that he runs further than 15
0: metres. Are we getting that one wrong? Do you know the answer to that? Can I just say that that is probably one of the most intriguing questions I've ever been asked. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we should introduce the bounce during the run-up because imagine how exciting that would actually be oh, for the game. Oh, it
1: would be amazing. <laughs> it would be amazing. I've
0: got to admit, I've never actually dealt with that question before and it's not actually in the rule book as far as I'm aware. <gasps> hmm.
2: Sure. The other one I just want to ask you really quickly is, so on the weekend we saw Toby Green kick an incredible goal from right on the boundary line in the game against Sydney. He came in from outside the boundary line and kicked the ball from, I think, outside the boundary. Are you allowed to kick from outside the well, boundary? Clearly you're
1: allowed to because he did and he kicked a goal and it was awarded a goal. Yeah,
0: yeah. well, the key is as soon as that ball or the player comes across that line, that's that's play on. So the key is not changing direction. If I put that in the context of, for example, along the goal line, if we have a situation where a player is kicking on from Behind the line, um, and they are actually changing directions so they're um, not running directly over their mark. The field umpire will then call play on, and it'll be registered as a score. So it'd be a similar application from the from the boundary. The important thing is that they're playing over their mark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that would be. And the there is a little bit more
4: leniency now about you can actually you know come and kick you around, a, kick little around bit a little bit more.
0: I think sometimes mm. it's the style of the players' kick mm. as well, and this is where I'm not a field, um, field umpire. But mm. um, look, I would suggest there's a level of understanding around the actual like style and technique of the kick and the and the and the player, within reason. I don't want to talk out of school here because I don't know exactly what the fieldies have been told, but you know I think sometimes that can probably affect the interpretation, I think, from a public perception point of view, potentially. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But it's all about playing over the mark.
1: Thank you, Chelsea. I know I really put you (laughs) on the (laughs) spot. You you sure did. (laughs) Questions without notice. (laughs) I have one final curly one. It's not even really a question, but um, at the Hawthorne (laughs) St Kilda match, someone, uh, I can't remember who it was, kicked a goal and the ball went up into the third kind of tier behind the goals. And the person who threw it back, um, kicked it back or threw it back, and it hit David Roden in the back of the head, who was the goal umpire. And... David Roden got the giggles. And so did the crowd. And everyone was just laughing. And he was you could kind of see him like kind of shaking and, and nodding, kind of shaking, shaking it off, but kinda of giggling it. And the more that he did that, the more everyone else was laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was infectious. Has that ever happened to you? I think he might have been about to pull out a
0: caterpillar, actually. <laughs> I um, was on the bench for that game and D Rod at the quarter time break said, um, I'm actually feeling a little bit uh, Saw in the back of their head, and he, and he explained what had happened. And I said, "Mate, I get it. Sometimes, especially from a great height, if that ball is launched back, I don't know if it's deliberate
1: or not. It's definitely deliberate." Yeah. Well, no, someone no. Has the good guy, who, the person who threw this one, was so embarrassed. he was mortified, <laughs> wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. But
4: it has, it does hurt. Mm. It hurts. Well, you were knocked over last year by Melbourne defender Oscar McDonald. Yes, and he's got a fair few more kilos on him than you,
0: <laughs> that was a pretty big yeah. hit. How did yeah. that feel? At the time, I think I was just more irritated that I didn't position myself a little <laughs> bit better to avoid the clash. Mm. Probably could have sort of read your situation a bit better. I've got to be honest, in the moment when things like that happen, it's pure adrenaline mm. and it's like you don't even feel it. And I've had situations in the past where like the ball's being like, kicked right in my guts from, you know, 10 metres out and stuff. The crowd goes, whoo, <laughs> and you are just pure adrenaline getting on with the job. And it usually makes some, you know, I don't know, YouTube clips and the commentary team goes off. It's not until a day or two later that you, the war wounds start to emerge <laughs> and you go, oh, wow,
3: have you, am I okay? <laughs> have you ever been attempted to catch it though? You know, there was once famously a field umpire who ah, did, Peter ca- Kerry, yeah, yeah, who did the catch the, the ball. Have you ever wanted to do that? <gasps> to protect your tummy?
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, sometimes you just sort of, it's this reflex and you're like the hands will come up or something. It's just trying to get out of the way.
1: Thanks for answering those very hard-hitting questions. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> In addition to being our favourite goal umpire, you've been working on some amazing things. There's been such an influx of women into the game and especially at community and grassroots level. You've been working on an amazing project to assist with gender balance. Can you tell us a bit about it?
0: As we know, there is a groundswell of uh, support and interest from a lot of women who are now getting the opportunity to be involved in our game. For me, I guess having uh, experienced over, well, almost 15 years now, being a a woman in a male dominated environment, I'm really interested in, in using that experience to help people to make that transition something that's actually meaningful and creating the sort of change that I think we need to see. I think there's a lot of tick in the box and that's awesome. And there's a lot of lip service without sounding overly negative. I think there's a lot happening that is really positive and a real opportunity to get the most out of women's perspectives. For me, I want to help to facilitate sort of conversations that ensure it's not just lip service. Mm. Um, so that's what this workshop is all about. So I've created Wealth. There are a couple of things happening. There is a, a bigger program. It's a certificate in high-performance through diversity of thinking and I've partnered with AFL Sports Ready to deliver that. Um, I also do privately through uh, my own, I've got a website, here's the plug, uh, chelsearoffy.com.au. But look, that's for people who want information about this sort of tailored consulting is the best way to put it. Um, But I've also created this half-day workshop which is all about gender balance. It looks at the evidence uh, for diversity of thinking through gender balance. Uh, It looks at some of the barriers, and I hate that word, but it's the word that we all relate to. So what are the things that are getting in the way? It just helps to facilitate the discussion around getting the best out of everybody. How can we create environments where everyone is thriving?
4: And who's the program for? Is it for local footy clubs?
0: Look, it's footy clubs, it's sporting clubs at all levels. Um, I do know that we have actually had some sign-ups from one of the AFL clubs who's coming along to this workshop. And we've also got some corporates. So what I actually love about that is there's actually diversity in the people who are taking part in these workshops to begin with. And one of my passions is is looking across different industries. So... A couple of years ago, I did a Winston Churchill Fellowship. It took me around the world to look at gender equity. And it's so fascinating to look at um, some of the lessons we can learn from different organisations and industries. And I think having people in the room from different backgrounds is a great way to uncover some of the ideas, some of the practical tools, um, you know, ways to just inspire people to make diversity strategies succeed.
1: What were some of the industries that you identified or that, you, that have stayed with you from your research that are doing it really well?
0: I spent some time in in Sweden, not only because I really wanted to go to Sweden, but uh, <laughs> because on a world scale... Um, when you look at the World Economic Forum's Gender Gap Index, Sweden does very well. Um, Politically, they've got pretty much equity, um, male, female in their representation. Um, They've got a really strong focus on sharing... the load between family and work commitments. It wasn't uncommon for me to, to chat with people over there and and they would say, well, you might be the CEO of a large company and, and you'll leave work at 3 o'clock to pick the kids up from school and that's just common practice and, you know, no penalties or anything. And, and it sort of it derives from this culture, you know, back in the 70s, they had parental leave for... The men and women. And it sort of created this, this culture where they, they don't really question this equity piece um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but one of the, the most interesting um, organisations I, I met up with was called Equalisters. And that all began um, out of this this woman over in Stockholm who worked in the music industry. She was going out clubbing and noticed that there weren't any female DJs around. And so she went to some of the club owners and said, hey, i I really want to hear from female DJs, like that would be great, Um, and was basically told, look, there are none. And within 24 hours she went away and got 133 names and it's sort of that was the beginning of her business. So that really made an impact on me because I thought, well, it's so... Again, that hasn't come from a place where club owners or men in particular are excluding women. It's just they really hadn't done the research and looked into the issue and so, you know, this woman went away and and she made it happen. So it can be done in a really positive sense. Chelsea,
2: I'm really interested in that phrase that you've used a few times, high performance. When people might be listening to us from grassroots footy clubs or local footy clubs and thinking about, why would I do this workshop? You know what's in it for me? Why would I want a certificate in high performance? And whose performance can be improved through this work? Can you draw that link what for that actually us? What that means? Yeah,
0: that's good to know. That um, maybe you know, I hope it isn't misleading in any way. But basically, it's about optimizing performance. You know, I sort of touched before on this this idea that I think we all society generally understands that you know we have to be diverse now, and we have to sort of change with the times and bring people in from different backgrounds and non-traditional backgrounds. That's not always easy and it doesn't always work. Often there's going to be, you know, a bit of conflict or resistance. um, And I've certainly found, you know, I guess over the years, um, these changes don't just happen uh, smoothly. High performance is about optimising performance. So we know that diversity drives better business results. And that's the reason that organisations around the world do it. So the leading organisations do it because economically it makes sense. That's the number one reason. I think fairness comes in at number two or three. So, it's actually not just the right thing to do. it's the best thing to do. It doesn't matter really what level we're talking about. You know, think about a grassroots club um let's just say they decide they need to um get more gender balance on their boards. Um, they decide to bring a woman in just for the sake of it. Is she going to stick around if the environment isn't really conducive to perhaps a more family focus or if she's feeling like she's moving against the tide. I think it's important for people at any level to understand that optimising people's talents is an environmental thing and a cultural thing. But in a nutshell, it's just about creating environments where people from all
1: backgrounds can thrive. It can't be overstated how important it is that you're so visible in an umpiring role on this enormous stage and we know that you were the first female to ever officiate an AFL Grand Final. The work that you're doing backs all of that up. So you're not – you're actually walking the walk. But, you know, we saw this little Oz kicker the other day with her Barbies that she dressed up as the players and I don't think it's too long a bow to say that there would be little girls that see you and go, I can be that as well. And it's really important – that women do have roles in football where they are the boss, where they're giving the hard answer and and that's you. And so that's kind of, that's really extraordinary and you are an icon of the game because of that. Mm -hmm. So to see that you're doing this work is amazing because you're actually following it up with practical ways that people can implement that across the community so congratulations on that but Thank also you. does it open the doors for you to be able to have these conversations because you are an umpire?
0: Definitely I think and just um, was it training last night uh, community umpiring round so we had a bunch of local umpires come along to training and at the end of that night so I was dealing a lot with the, the local goal umpires but a boundary umpire from I think she was from Albury came up to me at the end and just said I just want you to know that um, you're the reason I got into umpiring Aww. and I swear to it like that what made my week you know this is I'm not just trying to no <laughs> blow wind up myself here. I think having that realization um, and it does remind me that I am there and I have I suppose over the time I may have begun as someone who just wanted the opportunity to reach their potential it is really heartwarming and uplifting to know that you know, it does have an impact having that visibility. And so I take that really seriously Uh, and, you know, I try to have a bit of fun along the way, but I feel really fortunate to be in in my position and I think – That visibility challenges that narrative we have around that idea of barriers. So when I think about the number of times I get asked, so what are the barriers that you face You know, as a female? That really starts to wear you down after a while, I've got to admit. If we don't challenge that um, through people who are visibly out there just doing the job and succeeding and thriving at it, not because they're there to make up the numbers, but because they're actually nailing it, and as a secondary part of that, then starting to challenge the environment so it isn't so hard, Mm. And there aren't so few. I think that's just a key. So it's a really fantastic opportunity for me. And, you know, I feel very privileged.
1: Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us. People can go to your website, au, if they want further information about these programs. And we'll be pumping them up. And thank you so much for coming in and for doing the work that you do. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, ladies, I love seeing Chelsea Roffey. She just gave us a little oh. lesson in how to um, signal a goal. I love knowing actual technical things. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, I
2: feel like I learnt a lot
1: then. Did you think that she was kind of suggesting that you can add your own flourishes? No. She was like, you can have your own style.
3: Um, she was I- BU, wasn't she? Just do you.
1: Do you yeah. yeah, you be you. You be you. you, be you. <laughs> hey, Nicole's not here, but Alicia, you and Nicole have got something exciting coming up this weekend.
3: That's right. If you happen to be in regional Victoria, the Clunes Booktown Festival's on, which is really exciting. For more information, go to au. But Nicole and I will be talking footy and literature. So we're going to be talking about From the Outer, which is a book that we edited. Uh, together a couple of years back and has amazing authors like Chelsea Roffey, Sophie Cunningham, Angela Pippos, Christos Sulkis, Maxine Berniba-Clark and many more. But we will get a chance to talk football. That's on Sunday. There are many other amazing literature events, but if you want to hear footy and literature, go there.
2: Katie? The other thing I just wanted to mention is that sometime on Wednesday, the 1st of May, European time, um, midday I think, the Court of Arbitration for Sport is going to hand down its decision in the Casta-Semenya case. That's the case between Semenya and the IAAF, the Athletics Federation On the question of hyperandrogenism and differences of sex development, the rules that the IAAF developed which would otherwise prohibit Semenya from competing again unless she's prepared to have hormone treatment or or medical intervention. So it's a really, really significant international case on sex, gender, discrimination and human rights, and we will certainly be talking about that next week. Watch this space.
1: On Thursday, the 23rd of May, to coincide with the VFLW Pride game, and this is a um, something that's happening in Victoria, I should just say that, the Darabin Falcons are going to be having dinner, a fancy dinner, in Fairfield, Victoria, where they're going to have a panel of Julia Kiera who you heard in this podcast, Darcy Vessio and Patty Kinnersley, and they're all coming together to talk about the importance and to celebrate gay women and their impact on football. So it's going to be this beautiful Pride event, and they're going to have a panel which I think I'll be moderating. So I'll probably just fangirl most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll be a really interesting discussion because I think it's something that's really overt, but we don't really talk about it um, outwardly. So we'll be hearing from um, Julia Darcy and Patty Kinnersley. And there's also going to be a special keynote from Sal Rees, who you will Ooh. remember was a Darabin player when in 1993, I think it was, or 92 she realised that there was a loophole that you didn't have to assign agenda to the AFL draft document saying that you wanted to submit your name for the draft. So she submitted her name for the draft. She got followed around by a camera crew that day and then they subsequently changed the rules, of course. Um, So Sal has a really interesting footy story. A lot of people... And history may see her as the pioneer of the AFLW in its own, you know, in her own way. She was advocating and agitating from a very long time ago. So you can follow the Darabin Falcons on all of their socials to get information about that dinner. But I think it's going to be a pretty spectacular Pride event and um, it would be lovely to see a whole lot of sanctumers there. I think that's it for today. We just want to say huge thanks to Tess for putting this show together. She blows us a kiss as I say that, but really Today, she's put up with us because earlier in the podcast, we got the giggles bad.